0: <laughs> um, Tim, would you mind hitting the light thing? This one's doing this little pulsing thing. Sorry, I'll just be a little distracted. Well, if you're a guest here, welcome. I hope I got to see or say hi to most of you guys on the way in. If not, please uh, stop me on the way out if you wouldn't mind. Um, we have Great cards uh, that are kind of placed up here at the tables. There's also some on the wall. If you want us to reach out to you, we would love to shoot you a text or email you during the week and just um, just make contact and say hey and, and uh, see how we can be praying for you and how we can be helping or whatever. So um, I pray that this morning is uh, just an awesome morning. We, we, that last song we just sang, and it's incredible. And I'm going to, at the end of the sermon today, we're going to get to John 8:58, which is clearly the most definitive passage in which Jesus claims who he is. I mean, w- without a doubt, this is the If, if there's a passage that you're going to underline, that you're going to, if somebody says, well, I think Jesus was just a good teacher, you go to John 8:58 and you go, well, he didn't think he was just a good teacher. He said that he was God. And that's what we just saying the, the great I am. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that, and I'll explain that a little bit as we get there. Um, but before we do that, I, wanna, I, I want us to catch us up to where we are uh, in the book of John, where we are historically with where Jesus is at, as, as John's walking us through his life uh, and his path to the cross and ultimately to our rescue. Um, but before I do that, let me, uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, would you just help us to dwell on the fact that you are the creator of the universe. And you came down to rescue us. More than that, you you came down and you gave us your word and and you want to be with us and you want us to be with you. Would that relationship that you want for us, that you know is the best place for us, remind us of that, Father, this morning. and Remind us of that every day. That your words are truth, and the truth sets us free. Free from the lies of this world, free from the lies that we tell ourselves. God, would you set us free this morning, set us free every day. Allow us to see the peace and freedom that we have in you and you alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So Jesus fed the 5,000. We read that um, in uh, John, uh, and I'm going to quiz myself, John chapter 5 maybe, I think, Uh, is where we were at, right? So Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then John takes us to the Feast of Booths, and if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through what that meant. That was a huge ceremony, it was a celebration of the Jews, um, and God's provision for them while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. While he sustained the life of two million people for 40 years in the desert with manna, bread from heaven, from water, out of rock, all these amazing things that God did. And so they celebrate this to this day, and they did this this last week, um, in by living in a booth and, and living out under the stars and basically reminding themselves that God is their provision. Um, and so so when, when they're doing this feast, Jesus then stands up in the middle of that and he goes, that's good bread, but I'm the bread of life. And Jesus says, that's good water, but I'm living water. Right? And so he's walked through this. And then last week we saw that he declared, as they lit the, the candles in during the ceremony uh, in the Feast of Booths, they'd light these candles that, were, that each one held, I think it was 17 gallons of oil. They lit up all of Jerusalem. Uh, these were massive candles, uh, torches that they used ladders to climb up to. These were, these were huge. There were 12 of them. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so he said this over and over again. He's, he's directing these things, and he goes, these are great, and they're good to remember who God is and what he did for you, but, but I am the fulfillment of them. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, I am the fulfillment of all of these things. And as you can imagine, this is building animosity, right? Like the Jewish leaders didn't expect this. They didn't expect God to go this route when he was going to send the Messiah. They, they imagined simply a king. They imagined somebody that was going to overthrow Roman rule, somebody that was going to take care of, frankly, their physical and temporal problems. And Jesus goes, I've got so much more than that in store. And so he, he was shaking the foundations of what they had believed up to that point. And what we're going to see is we're, we're in chapter 8 here, and, and it, the animosity... Gets more and more and more. And even this morning, or actually this, this week, if you were going back and forth, right, between the small groups, so hopefully you guys read the piece that was between what I preached last week and what I'm preaching this week, so it makes sense. Um, but what you probably read this week is it kind of seemed like, um, like your kid's fighting. <laughs> it was like a very bickering type of, like, like the Jewish people would like, the, the religious leaders would, would bite at Jesus and like take his words out of context, and, and, and then he would, uh, he wasn't bickering, but they were like bickering with him, it was just this very weird, like, you kind of read it, and you're like, stop, so we just listen to what he has to say, right, it just seems very odd, and I think it's odd because they're filled with their pride, and they're having a hard time listening to truth, but we all do, <laughs> We all have a hard time listening to truth. And if there's something that, that, that Jesus has overarchingly showed us here and what he's going to show us this morning, is that truth is, is a two-edged sword. <laughs> it's kind of like the light we talked about last week. We like the light. We like the idea of a lit path. We like the idea of illuminated life. But we don't like it when the light shines on our dark and dirty souls and our thoughts, and the way we live. And so it's this double-edged sword. And so in the same way, we look at this and we go, we love the truth when we're on the side of truth. (laughs) But when we're not on the side of truth, we try to wiggle our way out of it, right? We defend, we want to preserve our reputation, all of these things. And so this is where we're at this morning. So we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you have a Bible, turn over to it. Uh, if you want to grab one, we've got them littered around. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen. Um, you can open up a Bible app if you want on your phone. Um, last week, we ended with this beautiful promise. Do you remember this? And it was in John eight thirty, And it says that as he was saying these things... What? Many believed in him, and we we're like, done. That's it, right? You just listen to Jesus's words, and you're going to believe. But y'all probably read last week during your, in your small groups, the very next verse is very sad, because then what does he say? He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, the same people, right? This is one verse apart. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. They don't like that statement. They they don't, they they were cool. (laughs) They were cool with the, I believe in Jesus. But then when Jesus says, if you abide in my word, they go, whoa, 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 who are you? And that's what starts the bickering. That's what starts the fighting. That's what starts the antagonism. And so it's interesting, right, because here are these people who believed in him, but then all of a sudden it was like, maybe that belief wasn't really belief. Now, we don't, we don't know. We're just reading what, what, what John conveys here in the text, what, what God inspired for us to read. But, but it seems as though those who believed in Jesus believed in maybe the, the good idea of Jesus, believed in the parts of Jesus they liked, but for Jesus to then say, abide in my word, that's, that's unequivocal. That's Jesus saying, you should, what does abide mean? Like uh, we don't use it anymore, but like we could go home to our abodes, right? It's our homes. It's, what Jesus is saying is like, you should, you should find your dwelling place in my word. Well, that's presumptuous, isn't it? I mean, if I were to say that, if any of you were to say that to me, I'd be like, (laughs) all right, weirdo, I'm not going to abide in your word, but this is what Jesus says. And we've seen how the the Jewish leaders are like, who are you? Who are you to say these things? What right do you have to say that you're the bread, that you're living water, that you're the light of life? How, How can you say these things? Who are you? And this is what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is going to go, you want to know who I am? I didn't finish the verse in verse 31, but so in verse 32, John eight thirty-two, he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in Jesus's word, you will know the truth. These aren't two separate statements. These are, these are connected. Jesus' word and truth. That's what he says, right? If you abide in my word, by the way, that's, a, that's singular word. That's not words. He's not saying if you, if you just like my sayings, if you like the words that are coming, out, he's, he's saying me, my word, like who I am, my essence. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You guys, there is probably no greater promise for us that reveals the depths of our depravity in life than that. Because the truth is challenging for us. But Jesus says it sets us free. That means the comfortable words that Jesus says, the ones that are nice and fluffy, and the Sermon on the Mount, and all of those things that we go, yes, I like those. Nobody disagrees with them. Nobody has ever disagreed with the Sermon on the Mount, ever. I mean, maybe somebody has. Very weird people would. Because it's easy. Everybody's like, yeah, 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 that's right, Jesus. Tell them the way it is. And then when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount... (laughs) changes, and it's hard words, it's hard truths, and we go, "Ah, I don't like that one as much. And we know this, we know this in our own minds, we tell ourselves things, we think thoughts about ourselves, about other people, all the time. And we know that they're not true. We know that they are not truth. And yet, we, we lie to ourselves, we lie to others. Like, this is the enigma, this is the, the, the desperate place that we are in as humanity. So let's pick up this morning in, in uh, verse 48, John chapter 8, verse 48. It says, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. You see, as all these things start, as this bickering and this fighting of, who are you to say these things? Who are you to make these promises? Like you, You're just a carpenter's son. You're an you're illegitimate child, as far as we can tell. We don't, we don't even know... Like, you come from Galilee. Nobody cool comes from Galilee. Like, there's just, who are you? How can you say these things? And, and so then they say, and they levy this thing. And it's a very interesting thing because um, that word, right, Samaritan, that, that was just a byword. They, they didn't actually, they knew where he came from. Um, they knew that he was not a Samaritan. But to say that you were a Samaritan was probably the worst of insults because as a Samaritan, you, you weren't an unbeliever. You were somebody that knew God. You were, they were Jews who intermarried with the rest of the population and started worshiping differently. They built their own temple. They basically rejected the Jewish leadership and the religious rules and all of those things, and they went, we're going to do it our own way. So it was an apostasy that was on a whole different level. This is, this is not just people that didn't believe in God. This is people who believed in God and rejected so for them to accuse Jesus as a Samaritan would have been a fairly low blow. But again, one not based in truth, just based in emotions and trying to dig at things. We don't ever do that, do we? Say something that we know isn't true just to get the last punch or jab. And so this is what they're doing. And then they say that you have a demon. Now, this is, this is actually pretty interesting, right, because they're actually on to something here in the sense that like either they are true and Jesus is evil or Jesus is true and they are evil you, there's no middle ground here like what Jesus is saying is either deception on a level that like nobody has ever understood that that he Lost his life to deceive, or it's true. That's it. There's, this is objective truth. It's one or the other. Like there is no middle ground here. And this is what's so so desperately sad is that our world keeps trying to find this middle ground where, where Jesus is. They, they take the parts of Jesus that they like, and but he goes, no, I'm true. Jesus says, what I'm telling you is truth. Objectively, it's true. Either God sent Jesus to rescue humanity as Jesus communicates and as he has said over and over again, or he did not. Am I right? It's it's one or the other. And so this is where he he puts us. And so the Jews are like, you have a demon. Why? Because they're like, well, presumably we have the truth. And if we have the truth... What you're saying is a lie. So it's kind of what they're saying. Their understanding of truth is more accurate than our understanding of truth. Because we don't play the objective truth game anymore, do we? (laughs) Our feelings are truth. You see, all of humanity has spent nearly all other than like sustaining life it's about discovering truth it's about discovering who we are that's all what science is Just, i mean i am like i'm a math guy so like discovering like formulas and i know that sounds super dorky but it's it's a law of the universe it's true when we discover like gravity and these laws that are like objectively true and i'm gonna go well i'm uh, like pie and all sorts of like i mean these things are insanely amazing you guys yes i'm a geek okay but but they really are because we're uncovering the recipe for creation and so our life has been about discovering what is truth But when we forego objective truth, it stops being about discovering truth and just declaring truth. And so we find ourselves in a place where your truth is not my truth and your truth, right? And we all have different truths. And now now the job for, you know, as we raise up our kids, the world will say, well, just let them figure out their truth. (laughs) You're like, really? Because God sees it in one way and one way only. There is an objective truth. Here's the scary part about that. Is if we live in a place where there is no objective truth and and we're seeking the truth for me, where's the place for correction? Where does discipline lie? Or conviction? Or repentance? You see... God declares that there is truth. And the reason why Jesus says that truth will set you free is because he goes, you need correction. and my words, my truth will give you that correction in and through your life and eternally so. And so as as you listen and abide in my words and truth, You will be set free because you will repent, you will recognize it, you will become convicted, and you will go, this is amazing. And then you will be at a place that is more closely to the heart of God. I think it was the second song we sang. I want to be near you. I want to know your heart. That should be our desperate plea. Well, you know what comes with that? Truth. And agreeing with God. But the the requirement for that is humility. And this is what we see as we walk through the religious elite here. Humility was not a characteristic. They they had the truth. They knew what the truth was. So anybody that came to them and said, hey, what you thought was the truth is not the truth. Better be ready to defend that. And this is what Jesus is going to do. And if you notice what he says there, in verse 50, he, he, talk, he shows the motivations, how you can know that he's speaking the truth. In verse 50, he says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In verse 49, he goes, You're dishonoring me. You're, you're pursuing your own glory. I'm pursuing God's glory. And we've seen this throughout. Jesus is constantly deflecting to the Father, going like, I came to glorify him. He's gonna glorify me. Jesus says, I don't need your glory. My job is to glorify the Father, to point to the Father. And what are you guys trying to do? You guys are trying to glorify yourselves. And that's, that's the pride, the arrogance that says, I want to define my own truth in life. I want to. Because if I define my own truth, What are you guys going to say? I'm going to say, well, that's truth for me. And sadly, this is where our society is at. And we allow our emotions to define our truth. We allow our feelings to be the defining thing. You go, I feel this way, and therefore, it's true. I'm sorry, but you don't get to make that determination. God makes the determination on what is true and what is not. That's it. I know it's a scary place, but this is this is where we take this right, and we go, "Where's the authority in your life?" We talked through what Scripture is right a, a few months ago. God's intent is that this is an authority in our life. This is above us. It we we fall under Scripture, we don't stand over Scripture, changing its interpretations and modifying its truth. We stand under it, and and so if if we're convicted by it. You've got a fork in the road. You either ignore your conviction and continue on your way in rebellion to God, or you repent, you turn. And this is what Jesus is saying. This path, this path of repentance, sets you free. It's freedom, it's freedom. We, last week we're like, if we're like in this cave, in this tunnel, and Jesus is the light and he illuminates the path. We would all go to the light if we were stuck in this tunnel, in this cave, and we're in this desperate darkness. And if you go this way, well, you have no hope, no hope of getting out. Look what it says in verse 51. Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We're going to look at the first part of this one. This is super cool. So if you remember, he he said back in, uh, I think it was verse 30 or 31, he says, abide in my word, right? Now he says, keep my word. He changes it. He changes it. And here's what's beautiful because keeping his word, don't think about this from a performance perspective. That is not what he's saying. He he is not saying you will never sin. <laughs> if you never sin, then you will never taste death. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, that, that keep there is that you it's like a treasure. It's like you you keep something that you want to have, that you want more of. You keep going back to it. And so the first part, he's talking about abiding in his word, right? Like that's your home. Well, do you want to go back home? That's what he's saying. He's like, keep coming back. Don't just, don't just be there. Don't just say, oh, I abide in, in Jesus' word. Like, come, like that should be a place of refuge to us, a place that we go to and dwell and that we want to go to. There's an affection in that. It's not just that we like it when we're there. Everybody likes it when they're there. The question is, is is it an affection that's changing our hearts such that we're, we're like, I want to go back. I want to keep going back to the words of Christ. I want to keep going back into the presence of God because that, that's the place where you will never see death. And so he says, keep my word, guard it, hold fast, desire it. And this becomes tough. Because we don't like to be corrected. <laughs> I don't like being corrected by anybody. I don't know if you know me. If you do, you probably know that that is something that like, I repent of often. Imagine being married to me. I'm just joking. I know. Um, but it is, it's a challenge. And I think if we all think about it, it's a challenge for all of us. I told, uh, I think it was was a small group. I told my small group, I'm like, this is, you know, if Melissa and I get into an argument and she tells me, like, that I have done something wrong, rarely happens. (laughs) Hypothetically, right? But, like, my initial reaction is, no, I didn't no, I didn't. Or I have justification for why I did. And it's a legitimate justification. That is my, I mean, like I could just pull that card out and says, no, I didn't, is option one. Option two is I had a reason for why I did it. Is this not how all of us start our arguments? And it's sad, but it takes some time until it's like, can I, can I have that card back? Okay, I, I was wrong. <laughs> And the difference between that is just patience and time and listening and communicating and all these things, right? And so this is where God goes, that's not, that's not what I want. That's not the truth. That's not, you know that that's not where you should be. And you go, yes, it is. Here's, here's why. Here's why, God. Here's why it's okay for me. Here's why I'm the exception to this rule. And he patiently waits and communicates and through his word, through others, through his Holy Spirit, convicts you, and you're like, okay, God, you're right. And so that's the place. That's the place where he wants us to be. But look at the promise. Back to verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? You see, so he goes, "You'll, you'll never taste death. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like there's all sorts of people who've been faithful, who've been men and women of God in the past. They all died. They're not roaming around at 800 years old and, you know, like, like they're dead. So how can you say that this is true, Jesus? Let me just pause for a second. Jesus says that whatever this is, whatever this abiding and keeping, he says you will never taste death. That's quite the promise. I mean, dare we say that this is probably the the motivations of humanity? to avoid, to prolong life, to defer death. Isn't that what we do? Isn't, isn't that what we're counting on? There's really smart people in labs somewhere trying to figure out how we make the fountain of youth injectable. <laughs> and then we go to all sorts of sci-fi movies where you're, you're watching it, and you're like, oh, that's what eternal life would look like? And you're like, you know, like here life, and you're like, oh, that looks horrible. Um, I didn't really think about this. We watched a movie recently where it was like that, and it's like, oh, how how sad that becomes, right? When you actually take that to the logical conclusion of dwelling here forever. Is that what Jesus is promising us? See, he's promising us something even more than that. Like, physical death isn't the problem. I mean, we think it's our problem. Like, the world thinks it's the problem. But Jesus goes, no, 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 I, I... I'm here to give you eternal life. You will never see eternal death. This is a very different problem set. There is nothing in our bag of tricks here on earth that has any bearing whatsoever on our eternity. Like none. None. Unless, unless somebody figures out a way to keep our decrepit bodies alive eternally, but then I'm not sure the globe has got the capacity for that, right? Like, I mean, you start running into these things, and, and so Jesus is like, I'm not talking about physical death here, you guys. I'm talking about an eternal death. Do you think physical death is bad? Imagine what eternal death looks like. I'm not saying this to scare us, but man, if we spent the amount of time focusing on our eternal life as opposed to our physical life, we'd probably be a much better off from a civilization perspective. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's like, I promise that you will never taste death. You will never taste this eternal death. And we actually read this, and I'm going to skip forward a little bit. I'll touch a little bit, Gene, on your sermon here in a couple of weeks. But in John 11:25. 25, uh, Jesus says to Martha, says Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's not, he's not playing word games here. He's not like, you're not really going to physically die. You're, you know, like, he's talking about physical death. You're going to die, but then you're going to live. You're going to really live. Like, really, really live. Like, a, a life that we have never, can't even fathom here, right? This, this life that we muddle around with is not life. It's slavery. It's sadness. And Jesus promises us an eternal life where none of that exists. So if you turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul picks up on this, and, and he's talking about where death came from and he says, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what's the cause of our death? You see, it's not biological. (laughs) I know science thinks it's just a biological problem and if we can just keep that heart beating longer, that'll solve everything. If we could just keep the deterioration of our bones from happening, if we could just keep everything going, then we'll be good. <laughs> but our death, the problem with the, the cause of death is sin, clearly. And we can go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we see it, the rebellion that Adam and Eve displayed and acted upon caused them death. If that had not happened, they would not have died. They would have had eternal life in the presence of God. And so they did. And so this is where God is saying, don't worry, I have a a solution. I have a solution for this to bring you back into the place where you have eternal life once again. But without me, without my objective truth, God goes, you're on your own. And we talked about this last week. He says, you're going to die in your sins. Your sins will cause you to die if you don't have a means of removing your sins. And so Jesus said last week, well, what's your plan? What's your plan for removing your sins? He goes, I have a plan. I'll take all your sins away and give you my righteousness. Sound like a deal? You have to do nothing except believe that I'm going to do it. And then abide in me. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful rescue. You see, the Jews were thinking about this military rescue, this coup against the Roman government, and God has to have been laughing. That's really what you want? How about I solve the problem that you can't escape from? And so we can respond just as Paul does in Philippians 1.21. He says, for to me to live is Christ. This is the living sacrifice that God calls us to, a fruitful labor in our lives, pursuing the glory of God, just like Jesus points out. What's your motivation? Is your motivation to hold your ground and to be right and to preserve your reputation, or is it to build God's kingdom, to glorify him, to point to the cross, to point to Jesus Christ? And then, you're like, listen, if if I'm living, that's what I'm doing. And if I'm dying, well, then I'm going to go be with Christ. What a beautiful place that is. I read an ABC poll. It was from 2005, but it was the only thing I could find. 75% of Americans believe that they'll go to heaven. I, I don't know what to do with that statistic. I don't want to come off of that saying, like, in some sort of presumptuous way but maybe that's the problem with our motivations. If, if we're all just hanging out and waiting to die and go to heaven, well, then I, let's eat, drink, and be merry. But if, on the other hand, our motivations, are Paul's motivations, we're like, I'm here, fruitful labor for the cross, for Christ, for building up God's kingdom. I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm exhausted at the end of my life. Time to go be with Christ. Whenever that happens. What a beautiful place that that can be. What a freeing place that is. In his truth, in his truth alone. So so who has authority over eternity? So here's Jesus, and he's promising, I'll give you eternal life. (laughs) I could promise you guys eternal life. I hope you would not pay me $1 for that. Because you know that I have no power no capacity to make any promise like that. I couldn't even promise you that you'll live for one minute. Right? Because I don't know. I have no power. Neither could you to me. So why is Jesus? Who, who has authority over this? How, how can Jesus promise this? And, and the Jews asked that question in verse 53. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? You got to, I think, and we've, we've kind of seen this as Jesus is having these discussions. I think he's drawing these questions out. I mean, he's omniscient, right? He knows what's gonna happen. He knows the hearts of man. I think he's like, I'm just gonna keep going and eventually you're gonna ask this question and then I'm gonna answer it, right? And he's like, who do you make yourself out to be? He's like, all right, let's rock and roll. You want to know who I am? And this is what Jesus says. This is what he does. Look at what he says in verse 54. He says, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. A little searing. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Just, Jesus says, I keep his word. Didn't Jesus tell us that if you keep my word? Hold on to that. Verse 56 Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen? Abraham. There's a, there's a lot kind of mixed up in this. But what, what, what Jesus is saying here is that is that he is God. He, he's leading them this, to this place. He has authority over eternal life. The Jews ask him, well, who are you to say this? Abraham died, right? Like, are you, are you better than him? And, and Jesus says, Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced in it. The Jews are like, all right, when, when did you talk to Abraham, and how do you know this? Right? What Jesus is drawing on is God's promise to Abraham. Look at what it says in Genesis 15. Six. This is God's promise to Abraham. He says, and, and so, uh, I guess I need to back up a little bit. But anyway, so, so God makes this amazing promise. He takes them out to the stars, and he's like, you know, him and uh, Sarah hadn't had children yet. And he's like, you know, you're going to have as many kids as the stars in the sky. All peoples will be blessed through you. In verse six, it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is the foundation of our faith in righteousness. That like we are righteous by our faith. We are not righteous because of our works. We're not righteous because of the good things that we do for God. God isn't more pleased with us because we're doing we're not sinning as much or anything like that. God's not like, well, if you get a little bit better, then I'll like you. You'll be on the good team. It's not like that because our faith creates that great exchange. Our trust in Christ means that Christ has taken our sins and replaced them with his righteousness. It's a one-for-one it's a one exchange. And this is what happens with Abraham right here. He believed God, and God counted him as righteous. All of a sudden, Abraham was righteous in God's eyes. That's what we all want. We want God to look at us and say, I, well done, good and faithful servant. That's righteousness. And so what was the promise that he believed? If you go to 17, uh, Genesis 17, 7. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God is going to make a promise to Abraham that includes land and people and kids and offspring and all sorts of things. But this is the promise at its base. This is the real promise. I will be God to you. Oops, sorry. I will be God to you. That's a relationship. I will be your God. That's what what God's saying to Abraham. If you believe in me, if we have this relationship, if you abide in my word, we're going to have this relationship. If you want to come home, and dwell with me, and be with me, we have a relationship. If you long to come back to this place where where God's word and his truth change your life and give you comfort and peace and joy and contentment, that's a relationship with God. And this is what he's saying, and this is what he's promising to Abraham. I will be your God. And so God makes this promise to Abraham. Abraham. And he believed him. And Jesus makes this promise to them, and they don't believe him. He goes, Abraham, he wanted this. He wanted this promise. He, want, he longed for this day to see when this was all coming to fruition and God's redemption of mankind, that the, the heel that's gonna crush the head of Satan that's gonna conquer sin and therefore conquer death like it's gonna happen and Abraham longed for it and he believed that God was gonna do it and now here comes Jesus on the stage of humanity and he goes, let me show you where eternal life is and they go, no, you're not even 50. How do you know who Abraham is? And they miss it. They miss it entirely. And so this is what Jesus is pointing to. And then he says in verse 58, it says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This just passes us by in English. (laughs) And so I have to spend some time on this because Jesus just declared that he is God. The great I am that we sang about, that I am, that is the name of God. Go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. This is when God is calling Moses. Moses sees the burning bush, and he converses with God, and and Moses asks a very practical question. All right, I'm going to go back to these people, and I'm going to tell them that God wants this to happen. Who do I say is telling me to go? What's your name? What's your name, God? I believe you, but I need to know your name. Like what, what do you, how do you want me to address you? And in verse 14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That Hebrew word there, it's called the tetragrammaton. It's, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's four consonants. Y-H-W-H. It's where we get the word Yehovah. or You might hear the word Yahweh. In fact, if you, if you go to a Jewish website right now, like even right now, and you go to do some research, it'll say G-D. Because they don't want to mispronounce the name of God. And the Jews used a lot of different ways to work around this so that they weren't mispronouncing the name of God. That's why they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to mispronounce it and so disrespect him. That's that's how they treated this word, I am. This this wasn't just a matter of saying, like, I am hungry or I am thirsty. It's It's not that. It's the name of God. And so they, they treated that with utmost respect, and so they never put the, the they're, they're, it's like, so it's Y-H-W-H, right? So, like, we use vowels to go in between those, and it tells us how to pronounce it, right? You pick A-E-I-O-U, sometimes Y, um, right? <laughs> That's what I learned. Um, and so, like, where you put those vowels ch- changes how you pronounce that, and they didn't, they didn't want to mispronounce it, and so it kind of got lost a little bit, and so you, you just have these constants. I can spend a while talking about this, but, but effectively, when this got translated into Greek, the word is ego, I, me, I am. And so when Jesus says this, he says ego, I, me. God's name says more about his characteristics than it's not just like, obviously, it's not the name his parents gave him, right? Sorry, I keep clicking here. Right, that's not, that's not what it is. He's saying, I'm self-existent. I am who I am. I am that I am. Some, some translations will say, I will be who I will be. There's a bunch of different variations, but it's this very beautiful, symmetric way of God saying, I'm self-existent. I, I am who I am, and you can tell them that I am sent you. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he isn't messing up the tense. He wasn't trying to say, before Abraham was, I was. He didn't say that. It's not written that way. There's no version of the Bible that's written that. no manuscript that shows that. This isn't a confusion, right? Any Greek writer would have been like, well, I, we're keeping that in there. Like Jesus clearly was saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the Father. If you keep my word, you're keeping the Father's word. I am communicating truth. And if I say I will set you free, I will set you free indeed. That's Jesus' promise to us because he alone has the authority to say these things. And we know. But the Jews picked up on this very clearly because we read verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is now the third or fourth time that Jesus has escaped effectively you know, death threats and murder because this time hadn't come yet, but the truth was communicated. Jesus communicated this truth. Like I said again, this is by far the clearest evidence that Jesus says, I am God. And so if I say, Abide in my word, keep my word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, then our response in humility is to say, God, I want to dwell in your word. I want to dwell in your presence. I want that correction. I want that rebuke. I want the discipline of my heavenly father. Can we say that? Are you willing to say that? Because that takes a level of humility that you're like, listen, it's not about me being right or wrong. It's not about me and my past being what I define my past to be. And and I've I've built up all of this and I can't go back now. I can't turn back from that. How embarrassing would that be? Yeah, like humility embarrassing, but God glorifying. How embarrassing is it to, to say I was wrong. But how God glorifying is it? How embarrassing is it is it for us to say, listen, I struggle with the sin. I'm struggling, I need you to pray for me. Oh, but then I have to admit that I sin, and I don't want you to know that I sin. Well, listen, I never have arguments, and I'm never wrong. Right? This is what we this is how we live life. And what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying, is that the truth will set you free. Pursue the truth. Pursue objective truth. Allow it to rescue us because those who abide in the truth of God will never taste death. That's the promise He gives us. Let me pray.